welcome to Sentient Planet. saving whales for so long and saving the planet for so long and nothing seems to get better and I thought I have environmental grief. Our guest today is Dr. Chris Kevorkian, one of the founders of Legal Rights for the Salish Sea and an expert in the emerging phenomenon known as environmental grief. On the day we sat down to talk about environmental grief, the story of a manatee found with the name of the former U.S. president etched into the algae on her body had hit the news. To Chris, this abhorrent desecration of a living animal was a painful reminder of our remote and upended relationship with nature. Welcome to Sentient Planet. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much, Susan. It's my pleasure. You know, we were just talking offline about um, a really horrific image that we've both seen today of a manatee. I think it's in Florida that somebody has um, desecrated and branded, if you like. And we've been talking a little bit about how upsetting that is and, and why. So I was going to ask you, you had mentioned to me that this really is a very sick example of and ecological grief rather than environmental grief. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you see those terms as differing? So this image, this article from New York Times is just horrific to read and to see that somebody has, as you said, desecrated and and branded a, a living being that is gentle and kind and would never defend him or herself. Manatees are are very gentle beings. And I see this as a form of ecological grief for those of us who are looking on. Ecological grief is a grief reaction stemming from the disconnection and the relational loss from our natural world. And I think anybody who could do something this horrific, this traumatizing to another being would definitely be disconnected from nature and disconnected from everybody, I mean, just on a totally different plane. Environmental grief is a grief reaction stemming from the environmental loss of ecosystems caused by natural or man-made events. So when I talk about environmental grief, it's more about a species or a forest, something a larger context rather than an individual. So these, these different forms of grief, environmental, ecological, who is feeling this grief um, in our society? How prevalent is it? Well, I know you and I are feeling it. Um, <laughs> I, it's, it's interesting because when I came up with these terms back in 2001, I was like the only person, and I was told that, I was told you're the only one who's going to feel this way. 
and today I think there's quite a few of us who are actually reacting this way to these forms of grief. It's getting to be a, a larger percentage of people as we're dealing more and more with climate change and the disasters that are coming along with climate change. And what are we supposed to do with these feelings, those of us who are having these emotional and psychological reactions to the breakdown of the natural world around us? How do we move through them? I think the best way to cope with them is to learn, one, gratitude. Be grateful that you are sensitive and connected enough to nature that you would feel this way and appreciate that about yourself. If you're able to connect with people who feel the same, that would be helpful and most beneficial in your growth. But coping with it is is quite a bit of a challenge because you may be around people who just aren't connected with nature, who see, you know, a dog as just a dog as opposed to a family member. But what I like to do with it is I ask people to use their grief, to harness their grief, and to use it to take action. So for instance, the way I use my environmental and ecological grief is that I'm, I'm gonna feel it. And today I really feel it after reading that article, but it's just gonna spur me on to do that much more to protect our environment, to save what we can of mother earth. So in the action, whatever that action is, perhaps that calls to you in the world, there is relief from the grief or what is it? How do we react when we start getting active in the world about the natural world and the things in that natural world that we care about? How does that help with these overwhelming feelings of grief that we may be experiencing? I don't know if the word necessarily is relief. I think it's just that rather than sitting back and feeling hopeless and angry and sort of digging into a pit of despair, I feel that when we're able to to work towards something, to take action, that in that action, we're able to move forward and know that, yeah, things are bad, but I'm going to use this energy to do something with it. I look at the Mothers Against Drunk Drivers and see that these women were able to use the grief that they had of losing family members to drunk drivers. And they use that grief to change policies and to make policies about drunk drivers and change laws. And I do the same in my world as best I can. I see my action as working within the rights of nature movement to make sure that nature has rights of her own. And for those of you who aren't aware of the rights of nature movement, I really encourage you to take a look. We're working with the Earth Law Center to get rights of nature for ecosystems here in the Salish Sea. We're looking mostly at at rights of personhood. And I'd imagine that if we're able to give rights to manatees, if we had done this before, then the laws would be much more strict and more enforceable, hopefully, to do something to arrest this person who branded a manatee instead of just asking for a fine or, or something that, that they've done, which is insufficient. Right. I mean, I wonder what kind of protections those manatee have and what kind of law that's on the books that actually protects them that this person has broken and what the legal repercussions could be. And I could look into that unless you happen to know. Well, in the article, I mean, they're a protected species, but that only goes so far. It's almost like saying, well, you know, children are protected, so don't hurt them. 
it's not going to protect them. We need to have laws on the books saying that children are protected. And if you harm a child, this is the consequence. And it's not just a fine. You know, we would never allow somebody to do this to a child and get away with it or pay a fine. And that's basically what would happen if they found this person. So you're the founder of Legal Rights for the Salish Sea. Where is that organization based? And what is your mission? What is it that you were working on? You mentioned nature rights, but maybe we could talk a little bit more about that. So where is Legal Rights for the Salish Sea? And what is your prime objective? So we are in the Gig Harbor area in Washington State. And I'm the founder, but there's a group of us and I've been very, very fortunate to work with amazing people. We're working to bring legal rights of nature to the Southern resident orca, including the Salish Sea, but we're looking more now at um, ecosystems instead of just focusing on the Southern residents. We called ourselves legal rights for the Salish Sea because we were looking at getting rights of nature for the sea herself but it's difficult for people to comprehend that. So we decided to focus on the Southern resident orca, especially after Taliqua lost her calf a few years ago. And there was publicity all around the world about that tragedy for her. And so people seem to be able to connect a little bit more with her. And that's why we focused on the Southern residents, but because we have minke whales, gray whales, humpback whales in this area, and there's the uh, North Pacific right whale that is very endangered, that is rare up here. And the salmon are so endangered here that we need to include ecosystems as opposed to just one species. Are there some examples of ecosystems being protected by the rights of nature in other parts of the country or the world? where that's been successful, you are basing some of your work on? Yeah, we've been really fortunate. Legal Rights for the Sailor Sea is partnered with Earth Law Center. And since I'm not a lawyer, I defer to them for all the legal information. But yeah, New Zealand has had rights of ecosystems. They've had rights of rivers. Ecuador has had rights of nature in their constitution for over 10 years now and other countries, the only issue has been how to enforce those laws. And so we're trying to still figure that out to make sure that they are enforceable. But it's interesting because I think the movement is actually growing. I think people are becoming more aware and conscious of the fact that while nature can certainly live without us, we can't live without her. So COVID has definitely taught people that. Chris, you came to the work you do now via such an interesting roundabout journey. Can you tell us a little bit about your earlier background in grief and death and dying? Yeah, I was really fortunate because I attended a private school in Los Angeles. I was born and raised there, and I actually had a grandfather who was a huge nature lover. And when I was in this private school in seventh grade, we went on a whale watching trip, and it was the first time I saw whales in the wild. I had unfortunately been to SeaWorld a few times because back then we weren't aware of all the trauma that the orca had gone through. But seeing gray whales in the wild was just the ultimate. And it's fun because every time I go whale watching, anytime I see a whale, whether it's from land or, or in a boat, 
it just takes me back to being a kid and the elation that I have. And I see in other people as well. It's just, it's such an amazing experience to be on the water somewhere with a being that is so huge and so gentle and, you know, isn't going to harm you unless, of course, you get in his or her way. So I started and in seventh grade, I knew I was going to be a whale biologist. That was it. And I focused on it. And I worked as a volunteer for the American Cetacean Society. The minute I got my driver's license at 16, I was driving to San Pedro to their national headquarters and went to school studying marine biology and zoology. And then life issues happened and ended up getting a degree in social work. And while I was in my senior year in social work, we had to do an, an internship. And my professor, who was my mentor, suggested hospice. He didn't really suggest it. He just told me I was going to work at hospice. And I had never had any experience of hospice. My family never had used it, thankfully, because nobody had died recently. And I just had just a few deaths before that time, years before. So hospice experience was really interesting. Working with the dying, I found to be such an incredible privilege. It was amazing to me that I had the opportunity to sit with people who were dying, to listen to their stories and to learn from their experiences. And that led me to want to do more in the field of death and dying. What were those experiences like overall? What did you find that you learned from working in the hospice setting? That's a great question. Thanks, Susan. Mostly how to live. You know, I see death and grief as the most amazing teachers because they really push us to learn how to live to our fullest. And my first patient was a 50-year-old man who was planning on retiring. He and his wife had worked all their lives until 50, and they thought, that's it. We're going to retire and travel and do everything they'd always wanted to do, but didn't because they were working so hard to this point to be able to retire at 50. And so he uh, went to the doctor to get a checkup before he and his wife went traveling, and he was diagnosed with cancer and had six months to live. And so his lesson to me was live life to the fullest, don't put things off. And what I came back from with that was this mantra that I have of, if I were to die in a month, would I want to be doing what I'm doing today? And that has really helped me to live a better life. It's not easy because then we, we tend to focus on what's important for us, but I think that that's a better way for us to live so we don't have regrets, so we don't end up resenting people or resenting what we've done in life. So that was one of the best lessons I learned. So thanatology is the study or science of death, dying, and grief. And I pursued that because I wanted to learn more about how doctors can communicate better with people who are at the end of life and so on. And I had a professor who 
he said, you really need to contribute something new to the field. And so I ended up coming up with environmental grief. I got so frustrated with his question and challenging me to come up with something new that I thought, well, you know what, forget this. I'm just going to go back and study whales. I'd been without them for too long. And when I went back to look at the organizations I had been involved with, things were just looking really bleak. And it's as, as though we've been saving whales for so long and saving the planet for so long and nothing seems to get better and things were just getting worse. And so as I read everything, I thought, geez, I'm just grieving over all of this and kind of thought, I have environmental grief and it just started flowing through my head, this term. And I asked my professors about it and they said, yeah, go ahead and study it. And I looked at the libraries and did tons of research because I couldn't imagine that I came up with something new at all, but apparently I did. So environmental grief, as I mentioned, is grief reaction stemming from the environmental loss of ecosystems and how I researched it was by coming up here to Washington. I was living in LA at the time, came up here and interviewed scientists who are working with the Southern resident orcas. And I asked them to describe how they're feeling about the decline of the population of the Southern residents. And it was fascinating to hear people's reactions and responses to that. Because when we did talk about environmental grief, it was kind of a light bulb moment for a lot of these people the description was always this vague feeling that people had and that I put a name to it. And so that was pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. But again, it was very lonely in the early days, actually in the early years until about no, 2016, 2017, I think people started figuring it out. Okay. So essentially when you were doing that study, you were asking people how they felt about the significant decline in the populations of the Southern resident orca. And there was a lot of descriptions that you were able to look at and explain that those emotions essentially were a, a form of grief that people were experiencing directly related to that animal and its loss. You know, it seems like the opposite of grief is joy. And so joy and a healthy planet would go together. I mean, when we are in a very healthy ecosystem or hiking in the mountains or having these connections with nature, they often bring a feeling of joy to us as human beings. You know, how are our human lives and our individual happiness and sense of purpose connected to a healthy natural world? You know, that's all, we're all going to have our individual answers and responses to that. What I find interesting is how psychologically we're told to get out in nature, to feel better, for self-care, for everything. We've got all these new branches coming along in psychology to push people out into nature. I find it really fascinating that even the people who are the one percenters will go out in nature and you know, go fishing or hiking or doing whatever they want in nature and finding it such a calming, supportive place to be. And yet they're still, you know, hell bent on destroying it. People move to Washington state because it's so beautiful here and then they'll tear down all the trees. So it, it's a weird relationship that we have with nature. I think it's one that we really take for granted. And I think my hospice experience has really taught me you just don't take life for granted whatever life that may be. Well, you know, as humans, we seem to have a contradictory relationship with nature, as you just said, and particularly with our animal kin. 
we love animals at the same time we abuse them we kill them to the point of extinction in the natural world or to the point of unspeakable cruelty in captivity and for food why are we doing this where are we going wrong and how can you see that we can return to a right relationship instead of one where we're having to grieve our own doings in the world you know it is really interesting because we have prime examples of people who are able to live with nature in a cohesive, connected way, and yet we ignore anything they have to say. And I'm talking about indigenous populations who have been able to work in harmony, live in harmony with nature. And yet non-indigenous people just tend to barrel right over her instead of really appreciating her as we should. And I don't understand it. It's almost like we take so much for granted. I mean, to an extreme that we just choose not to listen to people who I guess might wake us up and might make us realize what we've done. I know that most people really don't want to look back and have to be accountable on of their actions. But I think that if we want to move forward with any sense of hope, we really need to listen to our indigenous brothers and sisters who are out there who have been beating their heads against the wall to make us listen and we've just ignored them for far too long and we can't afford to do that any longer. So ways of being with nature that would be far healthier, uh, the knowledge of how to do that is available to us, yet we continue to uh, ignore that and keep going down this track that's making us uh, pretty desperately unhappy on top of all the other things that it's doing. I want to ask you your thoughts on it, though, as we're going. So what do you think of all that? I mean, because of your background from Australia and the Aboriginal populations there, they've been decimated to a point where, you know, it's just that genocide seems to occur pretty much everywhere. We just want to deny the voices of reason, it seems. Yeah, and I think it's got something to do with the fact that we have allowed ourselves to believe that we are somehow separate from nature, that we are standing aside from nature rather than understanding that we are part of nature and nature is part of us and really that separation is not there. And so because we have convinced ourselves of that separateness, I think it, it's given us permission to desecrate nature and take whatever we want and think that there is no repercussions for that and not understanding that the natural world is, a, is its own living, breathing entity. So the Australian Aboriginal experience is, I mean, I can't speak for those people, obviously, but it is true to say that they certainly have faced uh, an intentional genocide over the last 250 or so years, like so many other countries have that have come into contact with that kind of white colonial mindset and are still dealing with the ramifications today, which means that those people live in communities that are often not on their ancestral lands, that they are very broken in their spirits, many of them, that they deal with very high levels of alcoholism. They experience very high levels of diabetes. There's a lot of domestic abuse, etc. Now, there's also Aboriginal communities and Torres Strait Islander communities in Australia that have had a resurgence in cultural pride and have very healthy communities as well. You might not hear so much about them, but they are certainly 
exist. And in, in any form, the Indigenous Australian people have survived for tens of thousands, possibly uh, at least 60,000 years. I've seen some reports that might indicate they've been around for 100,000, which certainly makes them the, the oldest continued human group on the planet. Um, and so there's an incredible amount of knowledge that they carry to this day about how to live with nature and they understand their place within that and their role within that. So they, they've got a lot uh, to teach us and are willing, like so many other Indigenous people, to share that information. But we do, we definitely feel that we're separate from nature and superior to everybody else. share with me, Chris, would you be willing to share an experience of environmental or ecological grief that you personally went through? I think right now the issue with the manatee is really hitting me. It's one thing to cut down a tree. I, I get that people do that. But to, as you said, I mean, somebody branded a manatee. That is, it's just... I think on top of everything that's been happening in the world with COVID and I just keep striving every day to find good people. And there are so many good people in this world and so many people doing good things. But this one thing on top of everything else has just really thrown me and it's upset me and I'm just sort of reeling from it. And if others are doing the same, please acknowledge that allow yourself to feel that because I, I think what we often do with grief is we suppress it as best we can and grief is going to come out no matter whether we're going to suppress it or not it will come out at some point so I learned in my hospice work I had a chaplain who said you better cry every week because if you don't then grief is going to come out later there's just so much grief you deal with so crying is really helpful and there's also a, a chemical in the tears that relieves stress in the body so i always encourage people to cry and i'm probably going to be crying today just to release some of this stress and this grief that i have i just feel so sad for this poor manatee yeah and that desecration of that animal, of course, is connected to the wider social political environment at the moment. I mean, I don't know what, what you think the intent of that is, but to me, it, it, I look at that and I think, wow, they, in that kind of cult-like mentality, are the white supremacists of our country who think that they own and can go into and can touch and desecrate and do anything to anything or anyone that they want to. I, I don't know how else to read that. So, um, it's just, I think some of the grief might be, you just don't think it can go any lower and then it does. Yeah, exactly. That was really well said, Susan. Thank you. How important do you think it is for us to be more cognizant of the language we use when we are talking about nature and the environment? You and I have both read an article by Robin Kimmerer in Orion Magazine where she goes into that in some depth. Her article is called Speaking of Nature, and she points out how we ascribe the word it to anything really that is non-human. But those are still living beings that we are calling it. And so it occurs to me that that might be one place where we could be more conscious of the pronouns that we use to describe the natural world. 
Yeah, I would like us to refer to our animal kin, as you say, as family. And I think that's something I'm learning through the rights of nature movement. As I'm learning and growing through this, I'm seeing that I refer to the trees around me, the squirrels, the birds, everybody as family. My brother, sister trees, my brother, sister birds. I find that the more I do that, the more I feel connected and the more protective I feel of them. When I hear people refer to an animal as it, it it's like nails on a chalkboard for me these days. And, and I know that they have good intentions because I hear this often with people who are very spiritually minded who say, you know, let, let's pray for Mother Earth and, and all this. And I, I love that. And, and then they'll say it. And it's just like, no, no, stop, please. She, her. <laughs> she, her, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I think we were sort of pulling on, on what we've learned. There's children from, you know, Native American stories where we talk about Mother Earth and Father Sky. And so everything's related. Everybody is related. Even rock. Right. And perhaps we're using that word it again as yet another form of separating ourselves, right? Putting distance. We are something and this is something else rather than everything being on on equal footing and being all in things together. Yeah, I think you're you're spot on. Do you think if we take the time to think about the world in the terms that you and I are discussing here, especially even around pronouns, that that might help those of us who are experiencing environmental grief move through some of that? I think it would. I, I think that if we see that we're all connected, if we could connect with one another more, and then see that we're all connected with nature, I think that would help us with our grief. I just think building a community around our love and appreciation for family and that family being nature, I think would benefit everybody. You know, family is such an interesting concept though, too, because family can really be a pain at times, Um, but they can also be our best teachers. So we're very fortunate to have our immediate family and then our family that we might consider, you know, as friends and the family that we choose. But connecting all of those, connecting what we learn and then being with our family, I think helps us protect and nurture what we have around us, the family around us that much more. Much harder to do harm to plants and forests and rivers and our animal kin if we consider them family. Yeah, you are not going to mess with my brother, sister trees. Right. Well, Chris, thank you very much for your time. It's been a real pleasure, and I hope you'll come back and join us again in the future. Thank you, Susan. It's always awesome to talk with you. Sentient Planet is brought to you by co-creators Susan Woodward and Tiffany Owens. Social media by Bridget MacArthur. Art direction by Janet Grimwade. Original cover art by Vonda Whitley. Photograph by Mark Stoop. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. Interstitial music, Breathe in the Light by Stellar Drone. Sentient Planet is produced in the Krusty Palace studio from an undisclosed location on the traditional homeland of the Nisqually tribe in the Great Pacific Northwest. To support the rights of nature for the southern resident orca, please sign the petition at legalrightsforthesalishsea.org and join our pod at sentientplanetpodcast.com on socials at sentientplanetpodcast 
You can become a subscriber at Patreon for bonus interviews and behind the scenes content. Thanks for listening and love to all beings great and small.